Do I gather that you recognize me? I recognize what you appear to be. And appearances can be most deceiving. But not in this case, James Kirk. I am Abraham Lincoln. Bridge to all decks, or should I say, help me, Spock. Welcome to a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve and John. Hello. Hello, John Roca, and welcome back to Enterprise Incidents. It's my it's my pleasure. I'm sitting here in Lincoln's throne. Very excited to be uh, uh, hanging out with you guys and having some fun talking about one of my favorite episodes. Uh, my name is John Roca, and I'm here to defend the Savage Curtain to all people who would criticize this episode. And I have read some bad reviews in preparation for this um, conversation, and I am here to set the record straight about this episode to a lot of those people who vilify this thing. So I'm very excited to be on the show with well, you Well, the outlaw has spoken. <laughs> if the outlaw says he's here to defend something, then you better be ready. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, fellas. You say, John, you have to defend this episode. You don't have yeah. to defend it from me. I really like the Savage Curtain. Yeah. But the question is for you, John, you know, we were we were trying to figure out the like the next great episode for John to join us because he joined us on the two-part episode which which is a masterpiece, the menagerie, and also on Journey to Babel, which is also a masterpiece. And and on Space Seed. And Space Seed, of course, Space Seed. Right. Like these are all top-tier episodes. So, yeah, very so hard. when 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 it came to like the next episode, John, that you wanted to do for us, like what was it about the Savage Curtain that made you go, that's the one? Growing up as a kid, watching the original series, obviously in rebroadcasts, this was the episode that I've always remembered because of Lincoln, because I was a massive Lincoln fan growing up as a kid. He was the first president I was ever really kind of connected to, the good he did in terms of freeing the slaves and the Civil War and all of that. So for me, in our house, Lincoln was a very revered president. So when he showed up in this episode, when I saw this episode, and I was probably 10, 11, 12, something like that when I saw it, it put the zap in me, but good. And as I got older and I've revisited this episode, there's still so much you can take from this episode that I think people unfairly uh, try to minimize because it offers a lot of interesting concepts. It is not just good versus evil. It is all this other stuff that is going on in between the lines of the good versus evil construct that they've set up here. And so I remember just as a kid being in love with this episode and then what Kirk says, having to watch Lincoln die again. That was really hard for me. And watching it again, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I got emotional. I got emotional because you can feel that in Kirk's face and in his rage when he goes and tackles Colonel Green. You know he wants to finish this guy off. So uh, there's a lot here that I, I just remember being a kid and having the zap put, uh, zap put in me but good for this uh, episode. For sure. Then that certainly sounds like uh, you are the right one to join us for this conversation. Of course, every conversation, but especially this one. My friend and partner, Steve Morris on Enterprise Incidents. What do you think of the Savage Curtain? How have you felt about it? How do you feel about it now? Well, it's funny. I had a very similar thought as what John was just talking about, which is I'm watching it on our rewatch and I suddenly went, wait, is this where I first gained my love of Abraham Lincoln? Mm. Like, I think because if I started watching Star Trek at, you know, six, seven, eight, somewhere around that age, I wouldn't have, I mean, I probably would have heard of Abraham Lincoln, but I wouldn't have known much about him. I think this was the most intimate, like, introduction to that person that I ever had. And I think I always, you know, 
liked parts of it and watching it this time. What's so fun. I don't think here's how I will put it. I don't think as a plot, as a story, this whole thing works, mm-hmm. but there are things in it that I really, really like, yeah. you know, I find it enjoyable to watch. I could not agree more with you, Steve. I could not agree more with you, John. Mm. What's interesting about the Savage Curtain is this. Well, first of all, I have to say that just like I learned the preamble to the Constitution because of Star Trek watching the Omega Glory, just like I learned all about Shakespeare by watching The Conscience of the King, I, like you, Steve, and you, John, Mm. uh, learned who Abraham Lincoln was not in school but because of Star Trek. Mm. And, you know, I think people listening, if you're, if you're as old as we are, maybe you relate and feel the same way. Um, otherwise, you probably think we're completely illiterate and uneducated and out of our minds. But when it came to watching The Savage Curtain again, I realized that this is, a, this is another episode, like, like a lot of these late third season episodes, John and Steve, that mm. I don't watch very often. And Savage Curtain, I have not seen in a very, very long time. But what I remember about it is that when I do watch it, I do enjoy it. Because like you pointed out, Steve, there are a lot of things that are really good about it. You know, when it comes to just the overall concept of it, is it a is it a sort of inferior rehash of Arena and Gamesters of Triskelion and Spectre of the Gun? Sure. A lot of the issues and themes that are explored in the Savage Curtain were explored better with better payoffs in those episodes, especially arena. But when we get into this conversation and we get to those moments, those moments that make me go yes to the Savage Curtain, then that means really that I was so happy to get to this episode on our deep dive conversation. And of course, watching these episodes in production order and just doing these really, really, really deep, deep dives into these episodes and looking at elements that evolve. And there are elements here, but the Savage Curtain aired for the first time. First of all, I just got to say, this is our third to the last episode Mm. of the original series that we are covering on Enterprise Instance. I mean, John, you were there back in the beginning of the first season when we did the Menagerie and Space Seed and we felt like, wow, we still got a long way to go here. <laughs> but now we have like literally this is our third to the last episode, which like it, it, it makes me feel very emotional. It is a bittersweet feeling, but also very rewarding that, Steve, we, we've managed to accomplish this. The episode, The Savage Curtain, aired for the first time March 7th, 1969, the 77th episode to air, but it was the 78th episode to film filmed over seven days between December 11th and December 19th. So it went one day over schedule. Now for the end of the third season, because the, the production order was cut from 26 to 24, the per episode budget was actually increased to $181,692. But Savage Curtain came in costing $192,023, making it more than $10,000 over budget. But you could see it in the fact that there are a lot of extras, guest stars, and the production values. The score is tracked. It was directed by Herschel Dougherty, who directed the first season episode, Operation Annihilate. And this is one of the things that I love, is when you're watching the episode and you come in for the beginning of the first act, You see the title card that says, Story by Gene Roddenberry. 
teleplay by Gene Roddenberry and Arthur Heinemann. Heinemann worked on the third season teleplays uh, uh, Wink of an Eye and The Way to Eden. Now, Gene Roddenberry's concept for Star Trek from back in March of 1964 included the pitch Mr. Socrates. That made its way into this episode, even though Socrates did not. Uh, Then uh, Roddenberry did his story outline on May 8th 1968. He proceeded to a first draft teleplay on September 11th, but only wrote the first half of the script because he moved on to these other two movies that he was producing. So Arthur Heinemann proceeded to a second draft teleplay by November 27th. Arthur Singer did a script polish, his final draft on December 6th. And then Fred Freiberger, the producer of the third season, did his page revisions on December 9th, 10th, uh, 12th, and 13th. Uh, would you like to know what was going on in the world? Sure. On As you said, it was filmed December 11th through the 19th of 1968. On December 11th, uh, President-elect Richard Nixon introduced his cabinet to the American people on national TV, just a sign of how much more televised things are becoming. On December 15th, uh, Scott, you are from the great city of Philadelphia. Is that correct? That is where I was born and raised, my friend. Here is a thing I did not know about your football team, the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay. They were not having a good season in 1968. And at the end of their final home game, they got so angry that they started throwing snowballs at someone who came on the field. Do you know who that person was? No. John knows, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Santa Claus. What? <laughs> Are you kidding this me? is a legend in the sports world and still referenced in 2022 uh, in sports talk and in sports conversations, how the Philadelphia Eagles fans turned on Santa Claus and started throwing snowballs at him as he was coming on the field. Oh, my God. I had. Oh, my God. That's crazy. But you know what? That is very, very much Philadelphia. I got yeah. it. <laughs> So this one is uh, kind of crazy to read, which is on December 16th, Spain rescinded the Alhambra decree. Now, my guess is neither of you know. I didn't know what the Alhambra decree was. The year the Alhambra decree was made was 1492. Oof. And it was a decree expelling all Jews from Spain. Wow. Yeah, this is the beginning of the Spanish Inquisition. This is when Jews were given the choice of either convert to Christianity or be killed or leave. And in Spain at that time, there were 600,000 Jews. In 1968, when the decree was rescinded, there were 8,500 Jews left in Spain. The Inquisition! Here we go. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, you know, it's it's like recently there was some law in some state passed finally outlawing slavery. You know, (laughs) it's like, really, it took you until 1968 to rescind the Alhambra decree. Oh, God. (laughs) This one's absolutely crazy, which is on December 17th, uh, a millionaire heiress, Barbara Jane Mackey, was kidnapped, chloroformed, buried and buried alive in a fiberglass reinforced box. It just had a battery-operated air pump and a lamp, and it was $500,000 ransom was demanded. The first drop was botched. The second drop was made, and finally, three days later, the money was paid off, and a switchboard operator at the FBI got directions to the burial site, and 100 FBI agents went around digging with their bare hands trying to find her, and they found her unharmed but very dehydrated after spending three days underground 
in a fiberglass box. How is wow. that not a documentary? Wow. Apparently, there have been at least three movies made. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. But that story is just absolutely crazy. Yeah. And then this one is also just kind of bizarre, which is on December 18th, both President Lyndon Johnson and Vice President Hubert Humphrey were simultaneously hospitalized with the Hong Kong flu, which hmm. was the worst pandemic since 1957. 750,000 people died. And it's just so crazy to read about, you know, a pandemic and both the president and the vice president being hospitalized. It's, that's really scary. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, we topped them with this one, didn't we? Yeah, we win. Um, <laughs> so would you like to get into the Savage Curtain? I can't wait to get into the Savage Curtain with Johnny Roca. Let's do it. So we're orbiting some planet and I'm going to just kind of go through this a little faster, which is that it's covered in lava. We rumors of life forms. They seem to have a lot of power being generated. Which would indicate a considerable civilization there. What's all this poppycock about life forms on this planet, Spock? <laughs> you know what's interesting about the biofeedback of everyone on the bridge? So here we are. We're at the third to the last episode, which means we're nearing the end of the five-year mission because the, the first number in the star date indicates the year of the mission that the Enterprise is on. So the start date in this episode starts with the five. So and it's actually like five, nine something. So they're close to the end of the mission is, you know, Spock is just like casually looking in his sensors, looking at the, uh, at his instruments and everything. And Kirk is like sitting on his captain's chair, just resting, resting his head on his hand. And he looks over at Spock and he just casually goes over to Spock. You know, this is a very, starting off anyway, as a very routine mission. They're exploring a strange new world that with things that they cannot explain about it. And uh, we're saying, okay, I guess we didn't really find anything. And then suddenly, red alert. And then <laughs> we look out on the view screen and there is a figure coming towards them. And it is Abraham Lincoln looking like he is sitting in his chair at the, you know, in the mall in Washington. Yeah. I just have a question about this. Yeah. In fact, a lot of questions. Was he floating in space? Is that what we're supposed to think? Uh, uh, okay, Jai, what do you think? You go first. Uh, no, I don't think he was floating in space. I, I think actually it's a projected image and he is down on the planet in that because he actually says after their interaction, find me at tw in 12 and one half minute to beam me aboard. So I think it's just a projection in space. And I've seen some criticisms saying that he was floating in space and he's not. I think it's a projection put up on the screen because clearly what we find out from that creature, rock creature down on the planet, that rock creature is very capable of some audio visual exercises. So I'm, I'm just saying he's got great AV equipment. So I, I agree. And uh, the other thing about this is I had vivid memories from when I saw this when I was a kid. And definitely a vivid memory when I watched this just recently. It's like when you first see that image coming yeah. coming to the screen, and then it transforms and materializes as Lincoln. I just remember thinking, "Oh, this is cheesy. This is silly." So here's a, I mean, really, Star Trek Captain Kirk meets Lincoln. I mean, really, it just—it's such a silly concept. But what's actually really great, the strength about this episode, is that it overcomes that very very quickly 
when it really embraces what Star Trek has always been about and everything that Star Trek stood for. So, so to overcome the silliness, to overcome like what could have been like a Lost in Space episode and come back around to Star Trek, I think is one of its strengths. I think this is like the the strengths and the weaknesses come out perfectly because <laughs> they I, I as a kid really thought that he was just a chair floating in space and I didn't understand it and it doesn't make sense. And I think there's so many things where it's like, you just didn't really think through what was really going on here. Captain Kirk, I believe. A pleasure to make your acquaintance, sir. So Lincoln is played by Lee Bergier. So Lee Bergier, okay, before I get into his credits, was actually not the first choice to play Lincoln in this episode. Wait till you hear the first choice to play Lincoln in the Savage Curtain. Ladies and gentlemen, that first choice was none other than, I'm just going to say, the actor from another episode that Johnny Roca helped us with, Mark Leonard. Oh, wow. Mark Leonard was the first choice to play Lincoln after playing Sarek and after playing the Romulan commander. But he was already committed to filming in the TV series Here Come the Brides. So he had to pass, but he really, really wanted to do it. So Lee Brashear was seen on TV shows like Perry Mason, Mannix, Mission Impossible, and Dynasty. And back in World War II, he was in charge of entertainment services for soldiers serving in North Africa. Mm. Mm. I think he makes this episode. Mm. I, I mean, I'm not saying he's a Daniel Day-Lewis level of Lincoln, <laughs> but I I love him in this episode. And yeah. I think this is why I part of my... The Lincoln became one of my heroes starts with this actor, you know, and the lines that they give him. What do you think of his performance, John? I love his performance. There's, there's a real compose. I mean, look, you're coming in. Everybody knows as a guest star, you're coming into a TV series. It's been on for three years. It's a well-oiled machine. How are you going to, plus you're, you're uh, portraying an iconic character uh, that remember this is 1968, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, like, the idea of being aware of people who were for the good of the country was there and so who were assassinated was in people's minds. So you're taking this on at a really interesting year in the country's history. And I think he brings the right amount of gravitas and deep voice and just almost like a fatherly approach to the character that I think is so perfectly delivered by this actor. Every line he delivers works so well. And you're right. He is the hero of this episode. He makes the episode work. And there, there, are so, there are so many poetic moments, so much great dialogue. And when this actor, Lieberger, says these lines, like you just go, God, he was like born to play this guy. He's fantastic. And the look on Shatner's face is so good. Like you can tell this is something. How can I say this? Not a lot of things shock, shock Kirk at this point. As you said, Scott, near the end of the mission. This gets deep within him, and of course, later, a few, a couple of minutes later, we'll hear Spock say that they scanned the ship and clearly figured out the one person that you revere and love, and uh, have them appear on the screen. So, really interesting uh, decision. So, whatever cheesiness may be there for me, I'm. It ends where Kirk reacts to it because you can tell he's legitimately just in a state of shock, but also like uh, adoration for this image. I agree. Sees. I agree completely. That definitely struck me during my rewatch. John, like when Lincoln addresses him, the look on Kirk's mm. face is not this stern, like, what is this? You know, I got to protect my ship and my crew. 
like he's like, wow, yeah, Lincoln, like for Kirk at this stage of this mission to be speechless and to be in awe after everything he has seen and done and everything that has happened to him speaks just volumes about his admiration for Lincoln and what he wants to believe he is seeing. No need to check your voice telegraph device. Do I gather that you recognize me? I recognize what you appear to be. And appearances can be most deceiving. But not in this case, James Kirk. I am Abraham Lincoln. Wow. You know what? Like, that could have been just a silly, like, come on. But within within just seconds of being like, oh, come on, this is silly, you go, wow, what a great moment. Again, John, the look on Kirk's face yeah. is, is just seals the deal. Captain, will you permit me to come aboard your vessel? No doubt you have devices which can check my reality. We'd be honored to have you aboard, Mr. President. So right for the beginning, Kirk makes the choice to treat this guy as if he's really Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Do you think he's wrong, Steve? No, I think he is totally right. And I like his reasoning that he gives later on in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and this is just, these are all the things, there's so many little things that don't work and that are like wrong. And this is one of them, which he uh-huh. asks, Do you still measure time in minutes? And Kirk who we're talking about minutes through the entire series says we can convert to it, sir. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are just so many little, like, no, we, we, we talked about minutes probably in the last episode. We did because talked about minutes in the Corbomite maneuver. (laughs) I mean, we've talked about minutes throughout the whole series. (laughs) Isn't the laying the groundwork though, that he is stuck in 19th century time and 19th century approach in 19th century uh, ideology. So for him, he is asking Kirk, and so you know, and, and I get your point, obviously. But I'm saying he maybe he's asking Kirk. This is kind of a way of ingratiating himself even more with the illusion of who he is by asking these questions. So Kirk is like, "Oh, yeah," because he even smirks. Kirk even smirks. He goes, "Well, we can convert to that if you want." Yeah, you know, just yeah. a little bit of of an understanding here. So I wonder if it's a little bit of they were trying to just make it seem as if this guy was stuck in the time that he was creating. I have, well, that's the, I have no problem with him asking the question. Mm-hmm. The problem I have with is the answer should be yes. We still oh, measure wow. time in minutes. <laughs> Security, send a detachment to the transporter who immediately faces side arms and be prepared to give presidential honors. Jim, do you really believe he's Abraham Lincoln? Well, it's obvious he believes him. I got to say this about Shatner's performance in this episode. So the last episode we covered on Enterprise Incidents was one of my least favorite episodes of the entire series, Requiem for Methuselah. And one of the big complaints about that episode is how not only how out of character Kirk is, at least we thought, you know, some people disagree with us, but also how off Shatner's performance was. I felt like, you know, the series is ending. They're not getting picked up. Rouse low. He just kind of was phoning it in. Not in this episode. I feel like Shatner's performance really rebounded and felt like the Kirk that we know, the Kirk that we have admired, the Kirk that goes back to the beginning of the first season, or especially uh, when when Gene Kutten took over in the middle of the first season. So I think Shatner's awesome in this episode. We come back to the transporter room, and there is Scotty in his kilt and McCoy in his dress uniform. And basically, Scotty thinks this whole thing is ridiculous. He is 
very Scottish in this episode. <laughs> he's full <laughs> on with the guilt. He's met, later he mentions haggis. Uh, he talks about you know all these things. Very Scottish in this episode, but he is he is the, he is in essence like taking an element of the bones part in this episode. Yeah. Constantly questioning it, constantly pushing back. He's like, well, why would Kirk believe this? It doesn't make any sense. So you can tell that they were trying to give you know their other characters some more life as they were ending the show here. President Lincoln, indeed. No doubt to be followed by Louis of France and Robert the Bruce. If so, we'll execute appropriate honors to each, Mr. Scott. Robert the Bruce, there's another, uh, which well, I didn't know who, who Robert the Bruce was till I saw Braveheart. So me that, neither. that name went right by me when I well, watched it. Me, me neither. And that watching it this time, it never jumped out. Like now it jumped out of me. It's like, yeah. oh, I know who that guy is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> um, I also think there's a lot of padding in this episode. I mm. think they just, you know, there's a lot of like, let's just fill out these scenes a little bit more. I don't for a moment believe that President Lincoln is actually coming aboard, but we're dealing with an unknown and apparently highly advanced life form. Until we know when in Rome, we'll do as the Romans do. See, I feel like this goes back to the Kirk that we first saw in the Corbomite Maneuver. Yeah. Where he's like, you know, this is probably a threat, but of course in the Corbomite Maneuver, it was a threat. But he's like, this is a this is a new life form. This is why we are here. That's why we're aboard her. <laughs> yeah. So, and then we hear as we got the coordinates and we're about to beam something up that at first. For a moment, it appeared almost mineral, like living rock with heavy foreclaws, settling down now to completely human readings. And I, Scotty's, uh, Scotty's, we can beam it aboard. <laughs> well, and this is, well, and this is one of the things that, that again, a little more thought might have figured some of this stuff out is so what just happened on the planet? They saw something that looked mineral with heavy yeah. four claws. And so then clearly, this rock creature created a rock version of Lincoln, put it together, and that's what they um, transported aboard. Well, but, is, okay, but, go ahead. But, wait a minute. But, when McCoy is talking to Scotty about it in just a few moments, mm. he said it could have been something that was standing by. So, John, I thought mm. that what they picked up was Yarnick. What they picked up was the rock creature. Oh. I, I, you know what I mean? Because, like, Scotty says, I don't know. It could have been something that was standing close by, oh. which which is, that's the creature that we see, you know, eventually. Yeah. But, I, you know, you're, you're, you, could absolutely could be right too that that it was a rock creature like Yarnick that that morphed into into a human form of Lincoln. Yeah, I've always I guess always believed that they were all rock creatures, just like he was, and he just uses or maybe they're molten lava, because they say minerals. So for me, I think of whatever's on the planet that he can put or it, I don't know the sex of that, <laughs> put it together. And transport it up. You know, what I've always thought is that it was the Vulcan guy standing next to Kirk. He'd already prepared the Vulcan guy. So they saw the Vulcan guy, but they transported up Kirk. Like they caught the Vulcan guy on there. Uh, but yeah, the creature makes more sense, of course. Yeah. I, but this, and this is what I mean is that I don't think this makes sense because it's like, well, it's a big difference if this is a one of the citizens of this planet has right. transformed into Lincoln. Oh, yeah. To do this thing. Right. Or if Lincoln was just created and never existed in the, any moments before, right. that's really different. And so yeah. who this Lincoln guy actually is, I don't think they really figure it out. It's a great point because you know. we, we get told that there are people watching and there's a TV and citizens. Yeah. Of the planet, but we never see this. We never see it. 
So all we have is un, an unreliable narrator like this person to tell us, or this creature rather, to tell us what's happening, but we don't actually see it. Maybe maybe the ambiguity of it is is what gives it sort of a chilling factor that mm. like we don't know, we never actually find out, and that's you know that's okay. The mystery of it, yeah. We get our honors ready, we cue the music, and we beam aboard Abraham Lincoln. Again, this could have been totally cheesy and silly, but as soon as Leapergier steps off the platform as Lincoln and he starts talking, addressing Kirk and the, the music and all that, you go, I'm in. I, I buy it. I'm in. <laughs> Strange. Where are the musicians? That's taped music, sir. And it's interesting. So he has been programmed or he knows a whole bunch of stuff about the ship yeah, and about the crew, but he doesn't know everything. Because he doesn't understand about tape music. He's still a 19th century person. Gentlemen, if those are weapons, please lower them. At my age, I'm afraid I'm not very dangerous. Uh, but I just like how disarming, like like his, mm-hmm. his delivery of the dialogue. He's just like, clearly this is not Lincoln. Like there's no way this could be Lincoln. And, and it's coming from a planet that just moments ago was like totally covered with lava. And there's something to board the Enterprise in the 23rd century. And- his delivery just makes you go, yep, that's Lincoln. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love him. And what's so funny is now, and I know, John, I know Lincoln's a hero of yours. I yep. know, I think you said at one point that you have team of rivals sitting by your bed everywhere you go. Yeah, the Norris Kearns Goodwin book, yeah. And he's my hero too. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Lincoln when I first saw this episode. They did a great job of capturing that gentle strength and kindness, yeah. which is what made him such a profound figure you know yeah i i I can't remember a time watching this episode where i didn't know who lincoln was before i watched the episode so i feel like i might have been taught lincoln in first or second grade and then just because i was an avid reader like i started reading before i was in first grade like i was reading books i just for whatever reason i just was one of those people that i could start reading quicker and so i've always always consumed with that and so i might have learned about this or they might have taught me this so when he shows up in the episode, I remember as a kid being like, you know, so he and he nailed it. And so, yeah, you're right, Steve. It's just like the way he handles himself and the whole thing is like how you would think Lincoln would or how you were taught to believe Lincoln acted and what have you, which is what I love that later on in the episode, Kirk has a he Lincoln has a conversation with Kirk about that. I know what you've been told I am, but uh, I can be quite. Uh, evil when, or I can be quite hard when I need to be. And I love that. Lee Bergier's performance is so effective and so right on point. Steve, I was like you and, and just like you too, John, my entry point to Lincoln was the Savage Kurt. My entry point to Lincoln mm. was Star Trek. And here's this actor I'm watching as Lincoln for the first time and all of the nuances and the delivery and the gentleness mm. and the strength that Liebergier inflects into his performance. Everything I learned about Lincoln later tied back into what I learned about Lincoln while watching yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, that's a good point. Gentlemen, I hope to talk to each of you. But meanwhile, your captain is consumed with questions, and I shall do my utmost to answer them. And I trust your duties will permit time to answer some of mine. Again, that's like a lovely way to speak. Yeah, yeah. And they head out, and it's Scotty alone with McCoy, who asks again about what was there before they beamed him aboard. God, Mr. Spock, yourself. Mineral, he called it. Like living rock. And that became Lincoln. I couldn't tell. 
may have been another figure down there standing by. And I, I love that they switch this because they, the, the, in terms of the construction of the episode, right? It's, it's Kirk and Spock would normally be the skeptical ones in this situation, but you've got to fill that void because they're both kind of caught up with this whole Lincoln thing. So having Scotty and uh, McCoy be the skeptical ones, uh, I think, works to keep the balance that you've, you've established for three seasons on the on the ship. I cannot conceive it possible that Abraham Lincoln could have actually been reincarnated, and yet. His kindness, his gentle wisdom, his humor, everything about him is so right. We see Kirk on the bridge in his dress uniform, standing next to Lincoln. And the pose that Kirk is taking next to his hero. And I got to tell you, watching just that split moment where you see the B-roll shot of of Kirk and Lincoln side by side, they belong next to each other. Mm. Um, sure. I, I look, Kirk's one of my Lincoln. Lincoln is one of my real life heroes. Yeah. Kirk's one of my fictitious heroes, you know, wait, wait. fictitious. What are you talking fictitious? about? <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, Steve, what? <laughs> <laughs> but after, after some discussion of just of the, the specs of the enterprise and how high we are orbiting up walks Lieutenant Uhura. And this is a moment we're going to have to discuss. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. Yes, sir. Mr. Scott. What a charming negress. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I know that in my time, some use that term as a description of property. But why should I object to that term, sir? You see, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. So I think there is a lot here. This was a profound moment to me when I was younger. I think the world has changed in ways that maybe this doesn't reflect some I, the way that we think in some ways today. And I think this is a fascinating moment. Mm. All right. I have a lot to say about this too, but John, I want to hear what you have to say about this. Well, yeah, it certainly was uncomfortable. Um, I don't remember this moment growing up as a kid, which probably just is, you know, I just didn't think twice about it because I didn't understand that whole thing. Or maybe in my mind, I defaulted that this was a term that was used in the 1800s or whatever when Lincoln was around. Watching it this time, certainly I was much more aware of it, uh, much more uncomfortable with it. But Uhuru's response really surprised me. And that was an interesting moment, considering what's going on in our world nowadays and what we've got in terms of conversations, in terms of anger, in terms of uh, constructive conversations, this idea of, well, you know, uh, that's quite all right. Words, we're, we're trained for words not to hurt us anymore. We've embraced who we are and what have you. And so um, he steps back, just like, you, just like you said earlier with the weapons thing. He's very much like, well, then I apologize where no offense was uh, intended, but he does criticize the backwards thinking of his time. So although it is a moment where it is uncomfortable, it is a moment to overall say how um, Roddenberry, in maybe a clumsy way, is visualizing the future as a much more accepting and understanding future, an equal future for people of color and uh, people of whatever sexual identity you are. So first of all, that's beautifully said, John, and I agree completely. Uh, no, I have no, always no, that's, I, that's beautifully said, and you're horribly wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely I mean, wrong on this. <laughs> I, again, I had not seen this episode in a long time. Yeah. And when when Lincoln says those words, I went, "Oh, ouch!" But mm. but it was Uhura's response and Kirk's reaction to Uhura's yeah. response that basically put all of what Star Trek is all about 
into one moment. Yeah. Because Uhura's response was no offense taken at all. We we don't let words hurt us anymore. And then Kirk is looking at Uhura with a smile, with such idealistic pride to that, yep, we have learned to embrace who we are. And this moment just really affected me emotionally. I just went, like, this is what Star Trek is all about. You know, there was the at the end of the first season of Discovery, Michael Burnham gives this whole speech about this is Starfleet. And and that's a great speech, but this moment right now, this exchange between Uhura and Kirk and Lincoln, this is Star Trek. That we have what we we don't let words hurt us. We've learned to embrace who we are. It is an idealism that was that was certainly necessary in 1969 when the episode aired. It is an idealism that we sorely need now, and something that we really need to listen to Uhura's response and go. Yeah, right. Words should not hurt us. And the beauty of all this, fellas, is this. This is the last time we see Uhura in the original series. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. She is not in the next two episodes at all. What? And yes, this is the last time we see her until Star Trek The Motion. Well, I mean, we see her and certainly hear her in the animated series. Yeah, yeah. For for this character, for Uhura, for her presence on the bridge to be such a landmark moment when the series first premiered, and for her to complete her arc as a character by telling Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves, that we do not let words hurt us anymore. Uh, I just think that is such a way for her character to to stick the landing and to go out on the highest note possible. It is a beautiful moment. And I, I just thought it was, uh, it, I, I got really emotional watching it. And And I think of Dave Filoni, you know, Dave Filoni writes Ahsoka Tano. He created Ahsoka Tano. That is an important character for him. Live action or animated. He is responsible. He wants to put the words in her mouth to create this character and deepen this character and Roddenberry, of course, had a relationship with Nichelle Nichols and certainly created Uhura. So I'm sure he felt the responsibility here to write, come back and write this episode to make sure she had the right send off. And like you said, stick the landing, Scott. I would not be surprised if he was like, I'm writing this episode. That's that. Oh, my gosh. You're absolutely right. So I think there's a ton here. I have always remembered this moment always like it made a strong impression on me as a kid Mm -hmm. and i think it is kind of amazing that here we have uhura who martin luther king jr convinced to stay on the show who was assassinated six months before this yeah and now we have uhura meeting abraham lincoln Mm -hmm. just that alone without the dialogue is kind of an amazing thing yeah and then this philosophy that gets put forth is very much the philosophy I was raised with of the is that you don't let the words hurt you. Mm. And I was just listening to on Sam Harris's podcast, Neil deGrasse Tyson was on who I love. And they were talking about the racism that he experienced coming up. And he was a kid who wanted to be a physicist. And that was not something that an African-American kid in the sixties should be doing. And he came up against a lot of stuff. And this is the thing he said, and I want to bring it up, which is he said, when I was raised, I was raised with sticks and stones will break my bones, but names can never hurt me. Mm. And what he said on the podcast is that that philosophy has changed. 
And that today there are many, many people saying, don't say these words around me, whatever they are, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're triggering or they are painful. And that here we have this moment on Star Trek, which is kind of saying the opposite, Mm -hmm. saying, why would I, why would words hurt me? And what I, and the thing, the other thing that I think is amazing about this moment is that Abraham Lincoln, who obviously you would think we would go like, should be above reproach, catches himself. Mm -hmm. The word comes out of his mouth. And that it's obvious that he regrets it, worries that he would be offending, and then wants to, you know, apologize for it. And that it's that, it's not the word, it's the fact that Lincoln sees it, understands it, and means no offense is also part of what goes on in this moment, you know? And so I feel like this is a discussion we still need to be having today, you know? Sure. Absolutely agree. And Kirk's line is also great. He says... We've each learned to be delighted with what we are. Boom. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of what Star Trek means to a lot of people. Yep. For sure. And then, we, you know, Spock kind of mentions this. The Vulcans had a similar philosophy. And Lincoln says, Philosophy of gnome, meaning all. How did I know that? Just as I seem to know that on the planet's surface, you will meet one of the greatest living Vulcans in all the long history of your planet. First thing I wrote down is he's not one of the greatest living Vulcans. He died a long time ago. <laughs> so I guess he's living again now. Yeah. Um, and I also do love the moment that as uh, Lincoln's asking for more questions, he asks about the engine and, and Kirk says, Certainly. Our engineering officer has been waiting in the briefing room for you, sir, for over two hours. Her timing is great. Her timing yeah. is really great. <laughs> um, so Kirk has been so into hanging out with Abraham Lincoln that he has totally forgot. <laughs> what he was supposed to be doing. Jim, I would be the last to advise you on your command image. I shot that bone, but continue. Or do I have to lay it out for you? Practically, the entire crew has seen you treat this imposter like the like the real thing when he can't possibly be the real article. I, he, here's what I want to ask. And, and feel free to jump in with the answer, whoever whoever comes with it first. Mm-hmm. What does this, this scene remind you of? Uh, the menagerie? Maybe I'm no. Going to say, return to tomorrow. Risk is our business. Oh, absolutely. I thought yes, totally, a hundred percent. I thought you meant with McCoy saying you're looking bad in front of the crew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, this is that's what this is. Yes, and I mean, sure. Is it a rehash of of that, where the rest of the episode is a rehash of other things that I mentioned at the top of the conversation? Yes, but I don't care. I still like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of feel I, I do feel it as a, as a rehash and one that is like, oh, a kind of a pale imitation of that other scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why Lincoln, Spock? Any speculation on that? Speculation is unnecessary, Captain. The answer is clear. President Lincoln has always been a very personal hero to you. What better way to titillate your curiosity than to make him come alive for you? Mm-hmm. Wow, good dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I I mean, can you imagine if someone made your personal hero come alive and you could hang out with them for a while? I would just hang so. out with Captain Kirk for real? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was thinking to myself who would show cuz I mean like, you know, he didn't pick it. It was it was like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. He didn't pick yeah. it. It was picked <laughs> for him. So, you know what I'm saying? So, I wonder who would it be if they scanned my mind and my body? Who would actually show up there to be the hero that I would talk to? So just 
I could, I would, I wish you could create a VR thing like that that would be able to scan your body. Of course, the privacy issues would go off the roof, but like, it could be interesting to see who would pop up, and then you'd have to really reckon with that. Like, wow, I do feel that way about this person. Could be an interesting experience uh, if you were able to uh, make that happen. You know, you mean like you want. Next time someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Well, it also could be scary because you could end up in the astral plane and run into Killmonger. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and and yes, they're, they're arguing with him. I literally, as they're telling to convince him not to go down to the planet, I literally did write down, Scott, risk is our business. Yep. <laughs> um, and we're in the transporter room. We're locked in a synchronous orbit. Lincoln's there and they beam him down. And their tricorders and weapons stay behind. That's a great oh, moment to walk us because they walk right. up and they hold, they look at each other. It's really, it's framed well by the director there. Um, Cause you want to feel that sense of impending doom about the whole situation. It's smart. Some of the earlier versions of the story, uh, John, you've mentioned something before about how, you know, there, there are beings on this planet who are watching. Yeah. Who are going to watch the events unfold in earlier versions of the story. That was a much more prominent backstory because you only oh. hear Yarnick say it once, like people all over the planet are watching. Right, um, right. But what it was supposed to be was an almost bread and circuses take on on television, a satire on television. Oh, but yeah, yes. that that was downplayed by Freiberger when he was, you know, doing his rewrites with Arthur Singer, and uh, it and and also because they already went there on Bread and Circuses. But mm-hmm. also when they first beamed down to the planet, uh, the 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 people that they see on the planet. So the Vulcan was not named Sorak. The Vulcan was named Lavak, and mm-hmm. uh, there was also a flower child messiah named Pan. On the planet. <laughs> okay. Just to, to date it. Just to make it really dated. Yeah. Uh, thank God they didn't go there because they yeah. already did all that with the way to Eden. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so we're down on the planet. By the way, for a planet that no human has ever been on, there are a lot of footprints <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes them a second, but they notice that they don't have their phasers and tricorders. The communications don't work. Up on the Enterprise, they're trying to talk, call down to Kirk, and their communications don't work. And then the lights go dim on the Enterprise, and Kirk has now had just about enough. The game is over. We've treated you with courtesy. We've gone along with what and who you think you are. This is another reason why I think that Shatner's performance really did rebound from the previous episode, because Kirk is right on point. Yeah. He was you know, giving into his, like, his idol, uh, his hero, wanting to believe in at least the image of it all. But now, you know what? All bets are off. Okay, you know, we played your game. Enough's enough already. What are you doing? What's up with my ship? He's been absolutely the captain that we've seen since day one. Absolutely the captain who told Zephyr Cochran, I already don't like it in Metamorphosis. Like, he's had enough. And this is Captain Kirk. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, dumb joke coming. You want to know why Captain Kirk is different from how he was in the last episode? Why? Because Spock made him forget. <laughs> oh, not a dumb joke. Mm-hmm. Not a dumb joke at all. S- Steve, that's very, very valid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> because he forgot his love for Reina. Yeah. Was, yeah. He's actually kind of reset. Yes. Okay. All right. He rebooted Captain Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the seeming contradictions, all is as it appears to be. I am Abraham Lincoln. Just as I am whom I appear to be. 
and there is a Vulcan. It's Sorak, played by Barry Atwater, who was seen on TV shows like, first of all, he was on the TV, the TV show One Step Beyond, which was kind of like the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. That was an anthology series in the early 60s. And he played Abraham Lincoln. Oh. <laughs> uh, he was also on TV shows like Wagon Train, Perry Mason, uh, The Twilight Zone, Mission Impossible. And famously, he played the vampire villain in the TV movie version of Kolchak's The Night Stalker. Oh, yeah. Now, oh. here's my question, John, starting with you. What do you think of Barry Atwater's performance playing a Vulcan? Well, I think it's really interesting, especially because when you say – He's the father of Vulcan, and he comes across almost larger than life, like physically bigger than everybody, which I think is a really smart choice to choose someone who conveys that. You know, Lincoln was already tall, so it's already factored in, but this is a new person we don't know, and having this person step out and have the size and even given more size with those long um, – the design of his costume there to give him longer shoulders, it conveys a sense of like almost stone strength. Do you know what I'm saying? So I loved this version. I, you know, obviously I enjoy Spock and um, uh, Mark Leonard uh, playing the kid. Yeah. So it was having him come in as a new kind of Vulcan. I really enjoyed it. And it makes sense. He, so he looks like the father of, um, of how, what Vulcan came to be. So, yeah. Steve, what do you think of his performance? I think he's great. I think he's great. And I think it, it solidifies more of Vulcan culture for me, mm. you know, that I, I really like him. We're back up on the Enterprise where Sulu is in the captain's chair, and it seems like all hell is breaking loose. Scotty shows up. The engines won't restart. There's all sorts of you know loss of power in the warp engine. Seems like things are really bad there. Live long and prosper, Spock. And Spock does not return the Vulcan salute. He says, It is not logical that you are Serac. And I love Serac's response. Whatever I am. Would it harm you to give response? And <laughs> Spock's response is logical. Live long and prosper. Image of Serac. <laughs> By the way, just so you know, my autocorrect changes Serac to Barack. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's fitting. <laughs> just so you know. Yep. <laughs> and then there's this little discussion of whether or not Spock displayed some emotion on seeing Serac. And, and and I like that Serac, with a bit of arrogance, I think, yeah. says, The cause was more than sufficient. <laughs> I think I think he's really good. I mean, you know, Spock, yeah. of course, was set, or at least Nimoy's performance as Spock, set the precedent for every single actor to portray a Vulcan to follow. Some fared better than others. But Mark Leonard was right there, and I think Barry Atwater's performance as Sorak is overlooked in the great Vulcan performances because I thought, you know, especially with that little, you know, sarcasm that he inflects in there, Steve, that that he was – Terrific. After the next lines, I wrote down, I'm liking this episode. And here's what the lines are. In my time, we knew not of Earthmen. I am pleased to see that we have differences. May we together become greater than the sum of both of us. That is a great line. Well, what I love about it is what you would expect. The normal line was like, hey, I've never met this group of people. It seems we're a lot alike. You know, like you comment when you want to bring people together, you tend to comment on your similarities. (laughs) And and Serac comments on the differences and then says, may we together become greater than the sum of both of us. If that's not Star Trek philosophy, I don't know what is. Uh, again, and this is right after Uhura's exchange with Lincoln on the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is this is a, I think Savage Curtain is a special episode. We're not even at the end of the second act and we're getting all these inspiring idealistic moments that would fit that would be 
really relevant and certainly inspiring today. Well, the fact is, when you said that Roddenberry wrote the first two acts, but not the second two acts, <laughs> I think there's uh, there's something to that. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're seeing what what happened. Um, and at this moment, we get a giant molten rock creature. The yeah. rock creature. So we see this transformation, these visual effects, which are still pretty good by today's standards. A rock transforms into a a life form that we've never seen before on Star Trek. So we learned that we are on the planet Excalbia, and this is Yarnik. Yarnik is the name of this creature. So the person inside the Yarnik costume was Janos Prokaxa, and this person played the Horta. I was going to say, yeah. Neville in the Dark and the Mugatu in A Private Little War. The voice of the Mugatu, even though it is altered, uh, the voice's name you will know because Bart LaRue, among other things, uh, was the voice of the Guardian of Forever in the City on the Edge of Forever. And here come four people who are introduced as Genghis Khan, Colonel Green, who led a genocidal war early in the 21st century, Zora, who experimented with body chemistries, of subject tribes in my hometown of Tiburon, <laughs> and Kalis, the unforgettable, the Klingon who set the pattern for his planet. So these four actors, Colonel Green is played by Philip Pine, who was on TV shows like The Adventures of Superman, The Untouchables, The, the Twilight Zone, The Fugitive, and The Streets of San Francisco. Kalis is played by Robert Haran, who played Sam, the crewman, that Charlie X made disappear in the gym. Oh. Yeah, he was that guy. He was that guy. But he was also on TV shows like I Spy, Wild Wild West, and Dallas. And he was also a stuntman in, in well, check this out, a very storied and experienced stuntman over the years in films like Girl Happy with Elvis, Diamonds Are Forever with James Bond, Soylent Green, Blazing Saddles, Rocky, and The Black Hole. Then there's Zora, played by Carol Daniels, who was a stunt woman, uh, and she was in films like Spartacus, The Graduate, and one of my favorite movies that's really underrated, Capricorn One. And then, yeah, I love that movie. Genghis Khan is played by Nathan Jung, who was on TV shows like Kung Fu, Starsky and Hutch, and The Amazing Spider-Man, the 1970s version of that, uh, that, that hero, and also in films like Big Trouble in Little China and Black Rain. And just as an aside, fellas... And the earlier versions of the story, there were two other villains that were supposed to be on the planet. One of them was Attila the Hun. Mm. Can you guess who the other villain who was supposed to be on the planet, but the producers wisely took this person out? Can you can you guess who it is, can Steve? You, is Hitler? It, yes. Wow. Yes. Holy it God. is Hitler. It is. Wow. It is Hitler, and it was like, I mean, you're talking like- That's another episode. That's a whole other episode. Totally, totally. You're talking like 25 years after World War II, and uh, they thought, you know, maybe we take it. <laughs> Let's take Hitler out of this. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, there's a bunch of weird stuff about this. The first, the first small one, not a weird one, is that in my brain as a kid, I always thought that Zora was some sort of crazy mutant Vulcan. Like she had mm-hmm. done experiments on herself, because she has kind of pointed- uh eyebrows and i so she's crazy character um i i wish we got more of genghis khan uh because they're just they don't really do much with him i won't comment on the politics of the makeup on kalis 
But this is definitely where, like, look, if you want an actor with dark skin, why don't you just get an actor with dark skin instead of painting someone dark? Oh, yeah. But, yeah, fair point. Yeah. And the other thing, which I never knew until this rewatch, is like, oh, this is where Kalis comes from, that we actually becomes a part of Star Trek uh, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. Like, this this is the first version we see of Kalis. Yeah, so Kalis, you know, it was such a forgettable character in uh, The Savage Curtain, but I think it was the sixth season of Star Trek The Next Generation, he was in an episode called Rightful Air, where Mm. Kalis returns, and of course now he looks like a Klingon, and what the way Klingons look in the 24th century, and Steve, remember when we did our deep dive on the episode The Deadly Years? We were joined by a guest named Jim Brooks. Mm-hmm. Jim Brooks wrote Rifle Air. So it was oh. his idea to take the Kalis character and open him up in, uh, in Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, how cool. We ask you to observe with us the confrontation of the two opposing philosophies you term good and evil. Since this is our first experiment with Earthlings, our theme is a simple one. Survival. This is what the plot is going to be. They are going to have good battle evil to see which one is stronger. What do you mean, survival? The word is explicit. If you and Spock survive, you return to your vessel. If you do not... There's a big music sting, and we hear... Your existence is ended. And the look on Kirk's face, it's very subtle, but uh, the impact of it after after being like on the highest of highs and talking to his hero now he's like, okay, this, this got real. (laughs) So I think it's very interesting that Roddenberry left after writing acts one and two, it didn't go on to act three because one of the weird things about this episode is like the idea, okay, we're going to have good battle evil to see which is stronger. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. First of all, good and evil are not philosophies, you know, yeah. the, you know, it's like it's not like if even if they had had Hitler on the show, Hitler <laughs> wasn't going like, I believe in evil and doing evil. That is not how he, I mean, he was evil. I think we can agree on this show that he was, you know, but like those aren't philosophies. So how can they represent themselves? And then that task of like showing that in Acts three and four is really hard. And I don't think they succeed in doing it. We're back in Act 3, and we're on the bridge, and we find out they don't have the power to bring up, to, to beam up uh, Kirk and Spock. Uh, and they talk a little bit about, you know, the illusions of these other life forms. And I feel like, again, this is all kind of padding. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Back on the planet, then, and Yarnak's like, okay, why are you guys hesitating? Go yeah, ahead. what are you standing around for? <laughs> <laughs> Spock and I refuse to participate. You will decide otherwise. So, so, but they're also told to make weapons out of what is around you. Now, what does that sound like? Arena. Arena. That's totally arena. Well, and it doesn't, their choice of weapons doesn't have anything to do with good or evil. You know what I mean? Your ability to make a spear has nothing to do. Now, it seems obvious maybe the creatures on this planet don't know what good and evil mean at all. What, what if what if Gene Kuhn actually wrote this episode? He wrote Arena, and just like in Arena, the victor in the Savage Curtain, they're they're you know well the victor. I mean you know the other guys they don't they don't have starships or anything. Yeah. But if Kirk wins, the ship survives. If Kirk loses, the ship is destroyed. That's what that was an outcome of Arena, possibly. Yep. 
Well, and the, but the difference with Arena is that in Arena, Kirk has an emotional, personal journey to go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here he does not. Right. You know, right. it was about the character learning a lesson and making choices. That's not what this is about. Right. There's um, no, there's no, uh, there's no moment where, you know, Kirk has this epiphany of, no, I won't kill you. Yeah. Nope. That's what's missing. Captain Kirk, I quite agree with your attitude toward this charade. It's ridiculous to think that we should take part in it. What do you want? Well, the same thing as you do to get out of here. I have no quarrel with you any more than you have with me. And he, in a very reasonable way, talks about, hey, we got to work together and that they're really the enemy. You're somewhat different than the way history paints you, Colonel Green. History tends to exaggerate. And I'm like, we already established that the reason that Lincoln is exactly how Kirk imagined him is that he was literally built out of his imagination. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that Green is not how he imagines him since he would be built out of the same place. Wait, wait, is that established? I don't I don't recall that being established where Green was created out of Kirk's mind. Or, well, or where did Zora and where did Genghis Khan and Kalis come where from? Where else would they have gotten them? Well, that's a good point. That's the thing in my head. I'm like, well, well, just yeah, but just well, no, actually, it is right because he is tricking him. That's true. That so is it true. is absolutely yeah. like Green would be. Uh, in Kirk's mind, if they are taken out of Kirk's mind, it does fit because he is tricking Kirk. It's Kirk who once again gets caught with his pants down. So you keep quoting regulation. In fact, yeah, you're right. Cause that is exactly what is happening. Cause yeah. he's, as he's proposing that they combine their forces and come up with some way to overcome it. Kirk does say, you were notorious, Colonel Green, for striking at your enemies in the midst of negotiating with them. Yeah, see? So he's like, you know. At which point we see the other three bad guys who are totally just standing there, yeah. completely visible, split up and circle around the back. It's just like um, everyone would see them. This is not like, it's not possible that they can sneak up in this way. Right, right. And then Genghis Khan attacks, and it's just all so bad, which is he has a big rock, or quote-unquote rock, which he throws at Spock, which clearly he misses him. Yeah. And then the stuntman kind of bends over, almost like he's trying to catch the rock to make it look like it hits him. And then even though he doesn't touch the rock, he falls down. That's like just all bad. It's a, yeah, the choreography some... is not that great. <laughs> yeah. Let me show you some pro wrestling moves, Steve. <laughs> well, it's like same thing. Uh, well, and then, I agree with you. The choreography is not great here. Well, <laughs> yeah. speak, speaking of pro wrestling, Lincoln gets a couple throws in there. Yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. While all this is going on, the, the, why, why isn't Spock using the FSNP, the famous yeah. Spock neck pitch mm. on anybody? I feel like. Taking that out, like, you're going down, and you're going down, and you're going down. <laughs> so the bad guys run off. Kirk says, anybody hurt? Oh, I feel my clothing is somewhat damaged. But how delightful to discover at my age that I can still wrestle. She's <laughs> <laughs> cute. And then Kirk walks up in the midst of this and touches the burning rock creature and burns his hand. I'm like, that's really dumb. <laughs> uh, but, that's, uh, yeah, but I don't know yeah. if that's out of the realm of possibility for Kirk. Because he's he will... He's got to figure out what this creature is. He doesn't have the tricorder. He doesn't have anyone from the ship that can like scan the planet or scan this creature. So he he defaults to a, a rudimentary tactic, which is to try to touch him or try to see if he can punch him or, you know, because Kirk is a physical guy at times. 
So he resorts to that, and now he sees from the burn, like, okay, I get it. Like, this is something I can't do because this guy's probably made of molten lava. I don't know. When, whenever I've been around giant things of molten lava, I can usually feel that they're hot from a good distance away. You know, yeah, El was, probably, El, yes. Fair Kirk, he, Kirk definitely did not think that through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he lets him communicate with the ship, and we call up to the ship where we find out that not only is the ship in trouble, but it's going to blow up in four hours. Yeah. So now you're using an element that goes back to the Apple, where there is a mm-hmm. there is a time limit on this that they have four hours before the Enterprise explodes. <laughs> it's a weird right. It's a weird greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, what can we take from this episode? And you know, but I still, I still it like. It almost feels like. Um... <laughs> Gene had been reading the other scripts. It almost, it came in, it was like, oh yeah, I remember that. And then, then that, and then that. Yeah. Well, and there is this moment where again, we hear Kirk say, Scotty, inform Starfleet command, disengage nacelles, jettison if possible. Also an Apple moment. And also this idea that we see later on in next generation of like this ship actually could split apart. And just in the middle of him giving instructions, communication is cut off. And then we have the bad guys talking. It ends up that Kalos has been spying on them and seeing that the good guys have done nothing. And he wants to attack now. And Green, who clearly is the leader. I want to make sure the odds are in our favor. Overwhelm and devastate. That's the way to get power and to hold it. And I mean to do that. And he, you know, finds a place that they'll use as a base because it's defensible. Are we fighting a defensive war, James? No, we don't have time. But if things do go against us, I want a place to retreat to. What I want to do now is scout them out, find their weaknesses, and attack. And I know that you love this upcoming moment, John. I am 100% certain that you like what's about to happen. Do you drink whiskey? Occasionally, why? Because you have qualities very much like those of another man I admire greatly. And Kirk immediately just kind of gives a little thank you. And then as he's saying thank you, Lincoln says, General Grant. Thank you. And the Kirk reaction to that is so great. (laughs) Thank you. Screw you for knowing me so well. Yeah, I did absolutely (laughs) just like... Had a big stupid grin on my face because what uh, getting that kind of validation from a hero of yours and then having the veil of Kirk drop for a minute and you see not Captain Kirk, but James Kirk, Jimmy Kirk, you know, yeah. little James yeah. Kirk, who gets a love from the president in that way, you know, President Lincoln in that way. Wow, right. that's nice. Yeah, yeah. And I like how he says, James, are we going? So he like slowly but surely he becomes almost like a father figure to Kirk in this episode. For sure. For sure. I think that, so it's so funny because there's all sorts of things that I think are wrong with this episode, Mm. but the Kirk Lincoln relationship is not one of them. It's so, and I actually think that Kirk, which I don't believe that he does maybe any other time in the history of Star Trek, cedes leadership to some Mm -hmm. degree to Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Because Abe doesn't take it. Abe says, I don't mean to step on your feet, James, but I think this and this and this. And so, He's 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 very respectful, and of course, because Kirk has such love for him. Even though Kirk, Lincoln was not a military leader, Grant was the one who did all the military leading. But he has such respect for him that he's like, well, okay, maybe I can listen to some logic here from you. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny because the book Team of Rivals, which we mm. were talking about earlier, that hadn't been written yet. <laughs> but this is Lincoln's style. Lincoln yeah. was never confrontational. He was always kind of collaborative and kind and knew how to bring people into his realm, you know? Captain, logic dictates that we consider another course. In my time on Vulcan, we also faced these same alternatives. And he tells this story 
of suing for peace and sending out people asking for peace and that they were killed and the next were killed. And ultimately peace was achieved. Yeah. And the Kirk says, you know, which is true. These circumstances are different, you know? Yeah. A, these are people who were picked for being horrible, evil people. You know, they're not just like an army on another side and B you got four hours and the ship is going to blow up. But Serac wants to sue for peace. So much of what we heard, a Spock say about Vulcan history in Balance of Terror and Let That Be Our Last Battlefield, we are now seeing come to fruition in Sorak's physical presence, mm. but also his motivation to keep the peace and settle this peacefully. Like, I mean, you only hear about Vulcan prehistory in, uh, in Balance of Terror briefly in the briefing room scene. And then you hear him say more about it while they're having drinks with Beale and let that be your last battlefield. And you certainly hear about pre-Sorak history in the very next episode, um, All Our Yesterdays, which is an episode I love. But I've like, like there's actually a, a, a chronology here. There's actually a through line between what you heard Spock say about pre-Vulcan history and what, how you're seeing that history play out in Sorak's uh, appearance in, this, in the Savage Curtain. And the other thing I think he says that's interesting is he says, If I fail, you lose nothing. After all, I'm no warrior. Like, I'm not going to be any help. Yeah. The captain knows that I have fought at his side before and will do so now if need be. However, I too am a Vulcan, bred to peace. I think that the side of Vulcan culture that is bred to peace has in a lot of ways kind of been lost in later Star Trek. Mm. You know, I don't think we see the logic side and the cold side, you know, a lot, but I don't think we hear about the bread to peace side that much. Well, because most of the Star Trek stuff we get now is before, right? Most of them is set before. Uh, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Before, what? yeah. I mean, before the original series in terms of the timeline. Right. Yeah, but Star right. like a thousand years before that. Yeah. I don't know. When, when is, yeah, I guess so. I mean, Strange New Worlds, we don't really see that much of it. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, I, you know, Strange New Worlds and, and Discovery take place before the original series. And of course, yeah. Star Trek Enterprise takes place 100 years before the original series. But I, I, I see, I agree with Steve's point is that you see and hear more about uh, history of the transition and the peaceful the peaceful side of Vulcans than you do in the later the later shows, even if they take place before the original series, where you just see like they're Vulcan and then that's it, and they're logical yeah. and that's it. I, I think it's I, I, to be honest with you, just like this uh, show, it's a TV show, and so it has to be created to make ratings to get ratings. And I think nowadays people don't want to see that people want more gray areas people want more portrayals that um that explore the what the actual reality of that is and you can't just always be peaceful and certainly even in this episode where you see what happens to him and we see that you know Lincoln himself is like we're going to do some we're going to get on down we're going to fight at their level and get dirty uh you know and so he's not going he's not saying when they go low we go high he's saying we're going to get on down low with them and finish this off cuz Lincoln did a lot of, um, uh, you know, un uncomfortable stuff to end this war. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do your research on Lincoln and some of the tricks that he pulled, the suspending habeas corpus, he had some of his um, political rivals jailed. He got rid of some reporters who were spreading misinformation about the Civil War. This is all found sound familiar. So there was things that he was doing 
that kind of get brushed aside when people have the glorified version of Lincoln. Yeah. So, but Steve, you make a great point here that that's kind of been lost. But I think the reason it's been lost is because Kurtzman and all these other creators of, of modern Trek, and this is not a criticism, just an observation. I think they feel that the public doesn't want characters that are what I would, what they might deem to be milk toast and just all about peace. But there is a great amount of conflict that could be mined from that. Yes. If you were able to find a way to make it work organically in the storylines that you've created. So your criticism is valid, but I, I, you know, as I think about it and speak about it, it could be a real challenge for writers to make that work in modern Trek. Yeah. Well, but the, I mean, you, you, you really just made the, the point I was about to make, which, mm. I'm, which I'm glad of, but like Spock being the one pushing back on Kirk is part of what makes Star Trek. Great. You're right. It's, You're right. it adds conflict. It doesn't t- take away conflict. And it's right. not like you can't still have great action and great, you know, it's asking the question, like, is this the only way to do it? And and that's sort of what Serac says uh, at this moment. He, they they talk about, you know, you saw how treacherously the bad guys acted. And he says, yes. But perhaps it's our belief in peace that is actually being tested. Mm. Which I think is a great philosophical concept for him to bring up here. You know, as I said, some of the criticisms for this episode have been like, oh, it's just good versus evil. And it's a very pedantic approach to this concept. It's like, not at all. The fact that he is the one saying, I get it. I get what you're talking about, but maybe we're being tested about our resolve. And remember, this is 1968, right? Uh, after Martin Luther King, King was killed, there were riots in the street with people angry at the death of him being killed by a white man and all of this. There was, and you know, very valid the anger that was being expressed. We're, we were seeing that. So in 1968, this idea of how much are we really committed to peace, right? The flower power stuff was starting to die. We were about to enter in a phase when some of these hippies and activists became people who were uh, uh, doing bombs and grenades and and causing violence against the, against the, the Nixon side of things. And so this was a trans. So him dropping this concept just casually uh, as it, and remember this also, like I said, nineteen sixty, Martin Luther King spoke about peace, spoke about nonviolence. So. Having him kind of bring that up, I think, is a, a really fun moment in the um, – a really good moment, rather, in the episode uh, to consider and think about philosophically as this is happening. I think it's a good moment, too, mm. but I also think it's part of what falls flat. I think this would be a better episode if mm. that was actually the case, if they were testing their resolve for peace. But that's not where the episode goes. The episode goes in this other direction yeah. that ends up saying nothing, in my opinion, when we get towards the 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 act, the fourth act. I, I will say this, Stephen. I think you've got a good criticism of it because I, I want to echo that. You know, when Kirk is talking to Lincoln, we see in the background – that Spock is talking to um, Serac. I think if you were to do this uh, show now, this episode now, you would have, you know, that filler stuff that you're talking about, remove those filler scenes and you have the scenes with Spock and Serac having a conversation as a counter to yeah. what to what Lincoln and Kirk are talking about. So it becomes a more prevalent uh, subplot throughout the movie, this idea of them questioning what's really going on here. Whereas Kirk and Lincoln are resorting to, okay, how do we fight them off? How do we stage this thing? How do we plan the battle? Serac and, and uh, Spock are talking more about why is this happening? What is going on? What's underneath all of this? We need to figure out what the actual impetus of all of this is. So it's a more active approach. So I think there are missing scenes that would have been great with them having the conversation that could have fleshed this episode out a little bit more. So yeah, you make excellent points, brother. 
Um, so uh, we agreed to let Serac go. And by the way, there are a couple of moments as we have Serac kind of walking off on his own that are very grainy in the film. Mm -hmm. And I wonder yeah. if they were yeah. opticals or, you know, they, they didn't have the shot they wanted. And so they like they zoomed in on Serac optically and cut out something else to, in order to create that shot. Well, there, there have been a few times in, in recent third season episodes where they didn't get the coverage they needed. And when they were in the editing room, they took an image of Kirk looking one way and they flipped the negative yeah. so that he's looking the right way. But as a result, you're seeing Kirk with his hair parted on the other side. You're seeing his insignia right. on his right side of his chest instead of the left side of his chest. Uh, you know, little sloppy things like that that happened a little noticeably in the in the later part of the third season. So Serac is approaching the bad guys and they decide not to kill him. And we have a long conversation that I don't think we need to go into detail. Okay. Basically <laughs> Colonel Green sort of playing along. I really like the guy who plays Colonel Green. Yeah. I find him to be a very persuasive <laughs> version of that kind of a bad guy. He's adequately evil. Yes. yes. Yeah. He's adequately like evil. <laughs> it's um, like if you can't get Robert Blake, you got this guy at that time. It seems like that kind of vibe. State your purpose. I come in peace to propose peace. Are you surrendering? I'm doing what I consider best for all of us. If you choose to regard that as surrender, I accept your definition. I think Serac is a really good character. Yes. I will say. Um, but while this is happening, we see Kalis and Khan have snuck away. We know that they're going to sneak up behind him because... We were just told in the previous scene that that's what Colonel Green likes to do, pretend to negotiate while his people attack. You're very persuasive, Vulcan. I'd like to come out of this with a whole skin. Perhaps I can convince my associates that it would be to their advantage also. And then we cut to Kirk and Spock, who are making some spears. Your Surak is a brave man. And Spock says, in another great line, I think. Men of peace usually are, Captain. And then again, there's another, there's a weird slowed down shot of Abraham Lincoln, which again, looks like an optical to me. Yeah. And then we hear the scream and help, help me. me Spock. <laughs> help me Spock. Oh, okay. This is, this is laughable. <laughs> First of all, Kirk and Spock and Lincoln are really smart. They're really smart people. Yeah. Like, why are they looking at each other, like pointing in the distance, going like, hey, do you believe this guy? Do you really think we're going to believe this? Are you serious? It's like, it's it's laughable is what it is. And and, and it is also the end of Act 3. <laughs> and we're going to come back in Act 4. We're going to hear more screams and more help me Spocks for a long time. And <laughs> this is, and it's so funny. Like, I think Act 1 and 2 are pretty good. Yeah. I think Act 3 is setting up some stuff and it's okay. Although what it's setting up, I don't think quite makes sense. And act four is we're taking a, a big step down. Okay. Help me Spock. <laughs> I think you hear like Spock, help me. And then you're, ah, <laughs> and, and <laughs> so bad. as we come back, they say they're trying to goad us into attacking yeah. and that we shouldn't do it. How can you ignore that? A Vulcan would not cry out. So, so, is he saying that it's an imitation or he's saying that this illusion isn't really very good because Serac would never do that? Oh, good question. I think he's saying this is – we're being duped. Yeah. You know? I think you know Serac is probably dead. Because, because Spock, things, yeah. like Spock is very – even though he salutes the image of Serac mm. and he's, he's 
not being as accepting to the image of Sirac as he was to the image of Lincoln, I yeah. think. Um, I think when he says a, a Vulcan would not cry out so, I think he's saying this is illusion or not, this is, this ain't coming from no Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> and then this is, you know, just where things kind of fall apart a little bit because Kirk he hears that, but then says, yeah, well, I can't listen to this anymore. I got to go attack. I got to yeah. go, man. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and then Lincoln comes up and this is, I do find it really interesting that he kind of takes over. I suggest that we do whatever they want. Do what they want, sir? Not the way they want it, however. And he suggests that you two make an attack, make it look reckless, while I'm in a circle around and save Serac. No. James, James. Remember, I was something of a backwoodsman. I doubt that you could do what I was bred to. I can't let you risk it, Mr. President. This is all amazingly established this image of Lincoln. This was my jumping off point of Lincoln. All mm-hmm. these little things talking about like comparing Kirk to Grant. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and from there, everything I learned about Lincoln since those that first moment when I saw this episode, like solidified yeah. performance. Yeah. It's really spectacular. I can't let you risk it, Mr. President. Well, I am no longer president. <laughs> Mr. Spock, any comment? No, sir. And then... Lincoln is just in charge now. One matter further, gentlemen. We fight on their level with trickery, brutality, finality. We match their evil. Yeah. Wow. Like, what do you think of that? Like, like when you hear, when you hear, when you, like, especially you, John, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like you really know, know more about Lincoln and certainly have done a much, much deeper dive into his life and history and you hear him you hear this version of Lincoln say those lines is that is that part of his character or is he out of yeah. character I, this is accurate and i think that's why i like it even more watching the episode now as i've become an adult because when you read all this stuff you have to come to terms listen there are no great people without things there aren't you know i mean that's the thing when you look at with him and so you leading a country is not easy and during a civil war yeah. And some of the things he had to do, some of the decisions he made from the outside, you can look at it and certainly be critical of it, but he wasn't afraid to bend the rules, to break them occasionally because he he believed there was a greater good. And so his idea that getting down in the mud with these guys and fighting at their level, that feels like Lincoln because he has assessed the situation and he goes, we got to do what we got to do to get out of this situation. And yeah. if we got to revert to this, we revert to this. And then he follows it up by saying – I sent a hundred thousand men to their deaths, uh, doing, you know, so I understand the weight of what I'm saying and I understand what I need to do when I need to do it. And this is the thing that sometimes people get caught up in the glossy eyed view of Lincoln and Lincoln was a pragmatist. Uh, If he, and it's been reported, if he, if he could have ended the civil war without freeing the slaves, he'd have done it. And so you have to factor that into this whole situation of how you assess Lincoln overall. You know, there's, historical records of the things that he has said and done and, and what have you. So, you know, he was a pragmatist at the end of the day. It's just, he had that energy that people for whatever reason gravitated to and loved. Amazing. Mm. And these are all really, really good lines. Yeah. There's no honorable way to kill. No gentle way to destroy. There's nothing good in war except it's ending. Now that is not a Lincoln quote. That is no. a Star Trek quote. Yeah. But it's a good quote. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think all this is good dialogue. I agree with what John said, obviously, about Lincoln. I mean, I think he is a great man. And yes, 
the brutality of that war, you know, he was the commander in chief. So I agree with all that. I think structurally, this is totally off the rails for the episode. And the reason is, is because the point of the episode, what we've been set up with is we are going to see a battle between good and evil to see which one is stronger. Mm-hmm. That is the that is the situation they've set up. And the most good guy just said, let's be evil. You know, well, yep. that is well, exactly what he said. I'm going to disagree with you. Uh, he did not say let's be evil. He said, these are the tactics they're going to use. We have to beat them at their game because we are the good people. And in the end, we are going to do good things if we can get through this situation. That's doesn't, where he resorted to. But doesn't doesn't that mean – first of all, John, I agree with you. But if he's saying we have to match them, yeah. is, it, is it not saying – that we're we're just as bad as them. I you're at, you you know you you ask me that question and I'm a person with the mentality of if they're going to reject peace, then we've got to do we've got to do because the because the survival of the greater good of everyone is more important than being um, allowing evil to win. If you allow evil to win by pussyfooting around evil all the time. Guess what? You're going to end up in a bad situation. You're going to end up in chains. And I think you have to fight back and find that once you realize how you need to fight back, then you take that into your own hands. And Lincoln would have absolutely done that. Right. And I think that's where it's. And I don't think, and, and you know, and we'll just have to disagree because I don't think he's saying for them to be evil. He's saying they're going to trick us. They're going to do it. We've got to fight at their level to beat them and use their tactics against them. Uh, and that's what we're doing. They're not well, saying we're going to enslave them and torture them and experiment on their bodies and we're going to enslave them because they're an ethnicity or they're a sexual identity or whatever. No, we're going to beat them at their game because we have to win this battle um, so that we can survive and your ship can be free. Right. That's the greater good is the, is the is saving the enterprise. Yeah. yeah. So, A, a first of all, he, he does literally say we match their evil. We, okay, um, fair. Match um, doesn't mean we become evil. But well, here's I don't I don't disagree with anything you've said. Mm-hmm. I think I don't disagree with Lincoln in this moment. I mean, mm-hmm. like the ship's at stake. We're yeah. all going to die. <laughs> these aren't like these aren't like the, an army where there are a bunch of good people in the army I fight. These are like purely evil people. Yeah. That is yeah. who they are. These Ooh. are the worst of the worst. I have no problem with any of that. I have a problem with the episode. Mm. Is that if you look at if you compare this to Arena, Arena is all about Kirk making the choice not to kill. He's mm-hmm. being judged, and he finds a way to not do an evil thing, even though he's in a fight to the death right. with a guy who's trying to kill him. Right. This episode is asking the same question, and we even have the Serac moment where he says, maybe what's being tested is our resolve. Mm-hmm. Well, if that had been the case, like if you'd done this whole episode, and in the end, Kirk chooses not to kill, yeah. and then and they go, I, you know, I can't do this. You're going to have to kill me. And they go, oh, you've proven your point. You know, if it was more of an ending like Arena, it's it, that's what I mean is that is that they, the, the episode asks the question, how does good fight differently from evil? And the episode's answer to that is it doesn't. Well, 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 to, to your point, Steve, when you're looking at Arena, when you were looking at Spectre of the Gun, and Kirk has that moment where he decides not to kill. Yeah. He decides not that is where good triumphs over evil. Mm-hmm. And and that is where Kirk said in, in completely different ways, 
we can admit that we're killers, but we're not going yeah. to kill today. Mm-hmm. That epiphany, that that uh, uh, triumph of good uh, good over evil, even though the fate of the enterprise is on the line, uh, that's the sort of shining moment of good that this episode is missing. Exactly. Exactly. But having said that, John, I agree with everything. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Your campaign, Mr. President. Which I think is really interesting that yeah. he's, you know, said you're the boss. Yeah, yeah. And we're with the bad guys. And here comes Kirk and Spock who start throwing spears at them. By the way, I just want to point out, it takes a long time to actually make a good spear. <laughs> Second of all, spears in general are not throwing weapons. It's like, and the worse and the more like gnarled and not straight the spear is, the less good it is going to be for throwing. <laughs> this is a ridiculous use of this weapon. <laughs> like, but anyway, so they anyway. start throwing spears, and uh, and Lincoln spots Serac, um, sitting up, um, facing away from him. It was a worthy effort, Serac. Worthy. No need to blame yourself before its failure. Was there any time that you were thinking that this was going to work out okay? Not one bit. Never. <laughs> nope, ever. No. Never. And he gets up to him, and he's untying him, and he's still talking to him. And then Serac falls over because, of course, he's dead. And this is where we find out that Kalis can imitate voices. Help me, Spock. And that's why he was Kalis the Unforgettable, because he can imitate voices. <laughs> you should have ca- caught his act at, at the Copa. I mean, his... <laughs> It was really, really something special. Um, and, and, and by the way, so so, you ever have a thing where you quoted a quote with your friends only years later to find out that you had been misquoting the quote? Yeah, sure. Beat me up, Scotty. People do that all the time. So on the email where we set up the uh, our meeting to record this episode, the subject of my email was, now do Lincoln. Because yeah, right. my friends all the time said, now do Lincoln. When in fact, the quote is, now can you cry like Lincoln? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> he does not say now do Lincoln. And it was really upsetting when I got there. I was like, I've been saying that for years. He doesn't say that. Now can you cry like Lincoln? Help me, Kirk. Why was he having him imitate calling as Lincoln when they're just going to kill Lincoln and send him out front yeah. anyway? That was a weird one. I agree with that. That's the, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> that was like, that was strange, you know? So there's a rustle and Spock and Kirk are watching and Lincoln appears walking straight forward, very stiffly, hands behind his back. James, stay back. And then he just falls forward and the spear is sticking out of his back. First of all, by 1969 standards, when this aired, that's pretty grisly for primetime television Mm. to see this big freaking spear sticking out of the guy's back. Remember in Galileo 7 when – Latimer got killed by the spear thrown by the big ape creature. And then, you know, you see the other guy, the other, the other guy go down and it's, his body is covered with this really awful looking fog. So you didn't see the spear sticking out of his back. And actually as, as grisly as it still is by today's standards, it was actually supposed to be much, much worse in one of the earlier versions. Instead of Lincoln walking up and falling forward with a spear out of his back, Kirk and Spock were supposed to be beside a cliff and Green and Kalis, Green and Kalis were at the top of the cliff, you know, looking down on Kirk and Spock and threw Lincoln's body over the cliff 
and he landed it in front of Kirk and Spock. Oh my <laughs> God. So, Jesus. Ouch. That would have been much, much worse. <laughs> Jesus. And I got to say, you know, it's sad watching Lincoln die. Yeah. Yeah, it still is. Yeah. Um, and then we end up in a pretty dumb fight scene. Yeah. With the two of them against the four bad guys. At one point, you know, again, no Vulcan neck pinches, no smart fighting, no tactics at all. Kirk tackles Green. Hmm. I don't think he kills him. Well, he he's, he's like well, got he a knife, him, but something. the the knife is behind Green, or the the half yeah. of the spear is behind Green's back. So maybe he fell on the spear. But you're right; it's mm-hmm. not it's, it's not, not clear stress right. that he's dead. Yeah, it dis- and then despite the fact that it's four against two or three against two, the others just run off. Yeah, and they go well. I guess you win. Yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels very rushed. Like, okay, let's wrap this up. It would seem that evil retreats when forcibly confronted. However, you have failed to demonstrate to me any other difference between your philosophies. Your good and your evil use the same methods, achieve the same results. Which is kind of like my feeling. It's like, the and, and, yeah. and by the way, the only truly good thing that anyone did was Serac. Other than that, you know, he tried to sue for peace. Other than that, there's this really this episode sets up all these ideas, but doesn't really deal with them. And I just realized that my point that I said before about that, no, I won't kill you moment, mm-hmm. how it, that was missing. It actually was there. It was right there with Sorak. Yeah. Sorak said, I'm not going to yeah. kill you. Yeah. yeah. So, so Kirk probably looked at that and said, well, that no, I won't kill you moment. Isn't going to fly here. So I can't even go there. Well, that's what I wonder what G- what Gene is trying to say with this episode, and what you know, like, what is he trying to say about this idea of because he gives or or who's the other writer who I guess they wrote the last two acts Arthur Heinemann, yeah, Arthur, Arthur Heinemann, Heinemann wrote was, the second act, the last two acts. That's okay, right. Heinemann's making a commentary about this idea that good and evil, just like you were saying, Steve, the tactics are the same; they didn't separate them. They both commit the same kind of things, yet one calls themselves good, the other calls themselves evil, or the and, and the good call them evil, and vice versa. You know, and so, and again, 1968, riots in the street, Vietnam, all this stuff is happening where the country is dividing between the unsilent majority, as Nixon calls them, uh, or the silent majority, as Nixon called them, and the unsilent uh, minority that was protesting in the streets and doing all these things, and which we're still uh, doing today, the battle between the haves and the have-nots, the what we term to be good, what we term to be evil, depending on your perspective, it's uh, the same thing, and I wonder if maybe he was saying by having this rock creature say this, like you are you are all uh, able to do this, you're all capable of being evil, yet you claim that you're good, and so there's no real confrontation of this um, uh, thing that he says. So it may be that Heinemann was trying to make a commentary, like as he saw some of the liberals start to turn and use some of those tactics that they were supposedly against, as he saw some of these other things going on in the some of the disillusion going on in politics, maybe it may just be a commentary that, you know, people call themselves good in our society, but in fact, everyone's capable of of the kind of evil that they complain other people are doing. I think those are great comments. And I think you're giving the show more credit than it deserves. (laughs) I can't say I'm John Roca and I've come to defend the Savoor. Yeah, you did. (laughs) So after Kirk sort of gets a little bit mad at the rock creature for pulling this on people, he says, we came in peace. And you may go in peace. And so we beam back up to the bridge and Kirk kind of goes around and checks with everybody and they speculate a little bit about what the creatures did. And then he says, He seems surreal. 
And to me, especially Mr. Lincoln, I feel I actually met Lincoln. I, I, you know, this is a, this is a big, like, you know, Kirk went from embracing Lincoln, going further with, with him than he probably should have, like letting his admiration for Lincoln probably cloud his judgment as, you know, captain of the enterprise and responsible for 428 people. But, but then he, you know, when they get down to the planet surface and, you know, he's like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done playing. And then now he has seen, like he saw Lincoln die with his own eyes. Mm. You know, he didn't just read about it; like he saw it happen. And and like John, like you pointed out, the way he like lets, well, both of you guys pointed out the way he like lets Lincoln take charge when they're on Excalbia, and now he's back on the Enterprise, and he's like, "Well, I met Lincoln. I like I." Like he's like, it, it's hitting him, you know? Well, also because like at the beginning of the episode, he's questioning the whole thing, right? Is it really him? Is it not him? Yep. Whatever. And so he's going through this process. So by the end, he accepts that it is him and feels it because he says, seeing him die again, just, I know the feelings now I can, I can actually sense what that was like, you know? And so it's a big deal um, for that experience for him as Kirk and, where he's, you know, and as you said, Steve, at the beginning of this, like he's melancholy almost a little bit about that. They're, they're almost done with the series. And I'm sure they knew by this time that it was, you know, at the end. So there's almost a kind of reflective um, approach to the words that the, and the lines that he's saying here at the end of this episode that I found to be interesting. You know, that's a really good point, Steve, uh, John, that's, that's a really good point because uh yeah, they 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 knew, you know, mm-hmm. the end was near, and and there's more poignancy in Kirk's reflection on Lincoln when when you consider that this was the end of the road almost. It was so hard for me to see him die again. I feel I understand what Earth must have gone through to achieve final peace. And again, remember, this is 1968. Robert Kennedy's been assassinated. Martin Luther mm-hmm. King's been assassinated. So this idea of watching a world leader or someone you love and respect, someone who stands for your morals or your values for the people of that, for the people who believed in Martin Luther King and believed in Robert Kennedy, I think it was addressing that a little bit and kind of making that connection because the people who watched uh, John Kennedy die or heard about John Kennedy, five years later, the brother dies. Yeah, you know, maybe yeah. you're seven years old when John Kennedy dies and you're 12 when Robert Kennedy dies. So mm. it's a different thing. It's a shared experience between, between parents and children almost in depending on what age they were, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point, John, because like, you know, in 63, obviously the world changed in an earth shattering right. moment when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And like you said, like five years later, not even – you know, Bobby Kennedy, you know, in LA at the Ambassador Hotel. And yeah. now viewers are watching this show and they're watching Lincoln die. I mean, I mm-hmm. never even thought about that, but I mean, yeah, it's just a TV show, but still, <laughs> uh, you know, Lincoln, probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest president that this country ever had, flaws and all. And yeah, what an impact that must have been, like so close to losing a president and a presidential hopeful and mythologized remember that song abraham martin and john there is that connection the kennedys to lincoln oh, you know yeah. to martin luther king jr so there is that connection and so this 
is right catching the country's mood i think a little bit i agree with all of this and all of this is makes me wish this was a better episode <laughs> because because it is powerful and lincoln's death does move me yeah but it's all kind of so senseless and not really figured out and it's not you know what i mean like it, it it's lincoln is just kind of dumb and he dies kind of for nothing which i guess he died kind of for nothing in the real world but yeah i just wish that w they had set all this up in a in a better way it could have been a hugely powerful episode if it if it all really worked which it, i i think it doesn't you know well, well, here well, you you I, grumpy I, I, gus it worked yeah. for me and it was powerful for me yeah but you know what steve you you know you are right in in a couple of respects there too because like both you guys pointed out, you know, the first two acts were written by Roddenberry and it feels like it. The second, the third and fourth act were not written by Roddenberry and it feels like it. And also the, like so many third season episodes, especially the later ones, there's this like rushed feeling towards the end. That final fight is so lame and they just run off and they're, they're victorious. Like really, that's it. I mean, if Lincoln had sacrificed himself, you know what I mean? In a dramatic way to save Kirk and Spock, it would have a proven the power of good, which is what this episode sort of fails to do, yeah. and b been a more dramatic. You know, I mean, and and like I said, him walking out there with the spear in his back is is dramatic. It definitely is. Yeah. By the way, it reminds me, John, uh, years ago when we did the Civil War documentary, mm -hmm. um, and there's this moment where Ken Burns and his crew are in the in the mix, which means they're putting all the sound together. This is the very end of the process of making a movie. Yeah. And they're, you know, over budget and they're out of time and they're rushing to get through the movie. And then Ken Burns' assistant runs into the mix room and says, wait, stop. <laughs> because they realized they were about to lay down the sound of the gunshot that killed Lincoln. Oh, oh wow. Ooh. And they said, well, let's, we can't just rush through this. And they all stopped. And the and the and the mix guy is going, hey, time is money. We gotta go. We gotta go. And they're like, no. And they sat and just contemplated it for a moment before they laid down those final sounds and assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And I just thought about this. It was so hard to watch him die again. Yeah. Moment, you know. Um, and then there's an in, there's one more interesting moment, I think, at the end of this episode, as they're, you know, doing their typical, okay, let's head out of orbit to our next assignment. We hear there's still so much of their work to be done in the galaxy. I mean, how can you not look at that line as, as a way of them saying, we would have liked to continue the show if we could have. There was more to do. And then also saying a commentary on, <clears throat> sorry, our world and our global world saying, there's still so much work to do in our world, in our America, in our you know, uh, Earth. There is so much here. So that line has so much meaning because, again, they know they're ending the show and they won't be able to maybe uh, impart these lessons uh, in different projects. So they're going to go out swinging. Well, um, you know, it's funny. The they, they, Bible. They, you know, they didn't know, and now look at all the other Star Trek shows and movies that followed. Right. But, right. but also, also, fellas, the you know those words. There's still so much of their work to be done in the galaxy. Yeah. And there is even more of their work to be done today because in so many ways, so much has gotten deeper and more complex yeah. since, you know, when this, this episode was filmed in 1968, you know, people who say, you know, 1968 was like the worst year uh, this country ever had. And up until, up until like 2020, it was, 
But then in the 2020, you had not just the pandemic, but so much other stuff going on. I mean, it was really, really nuts. Um, I mean, those words resonate much, much deeper because there's still so much more of their work to be done today. And that is the ship flies off is the end of the Savage Curtain. The end of the Savage Curtain. But do not fret. Not only will you see Kalis the Unforgettable again, like we pointed out in the Next Generation episode, Rightful Air, but Colonel Green will return in the episode of Enterprise called Demons. And Sorak will return in the episode of Enterprise called Awakening. And just when you thought you'd seen the last of Colonel Green's red uniform, why don't you take a good look at Colonel Green wearing that red uniform? And then, are you ready, fellas? Take a look at Robin Williams wearing that same uniform in Mork and Mindy. That is crazy. (laughs) Steve has always pointed out how much he loves when, you know, he sees like, oh, they're saving some money. So Mork and Mindy actually saved money on the wardrobe by repurposing Colonel Green's uniform. (laughs) What's really crazy about that one is like, because we saw before in like uh, Cat's Paw and stuff like this, where, you know, we really use a prop or something like that. Mork's uniform, that is a the key to the show. That's the most important costume in the show. And the fact that they would go back I don't know when Mork and Mindy started, probably like 1980 or something, but but like that they would go back to a 1968 episode of Star Trek to steal Mork's uniform is pretty nuts. <laughs> it sure is. It sure and it is. first showed up in Happy Days. So that's the sense. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, so, and yeah. actually that makes sense because <clears throat> they just didn't expect Mork to be a, a key character. No. They just thought he was a one shot. Right. right. So, so they're like, we just need to, you know, get a cheap costume. And yeah. Paramount, Paramount produced Happy Days, just like by the third season of Star Trek, they were producing Star Trek. Oh, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so did uh, what, what did other people have to say about this episode, Scott? Well, producer Fred Freiberger said there was a lot, and just touching on what John just said, there was a sense of doom on the last few shows because you could sense the rumors going around that the network wasn't picking Star Trek up. Oh, wow. Towards the end of the season, morale was pretty low and i i definitely picked that up when we were watching uh the previous episode um uh, requiem for methuselah so teleplay co-writer arthur heineman said when gene coon left much of the quality of the original show was lost when fred freiberger took over i felt like it was being cheapened the ideas during the third season weren't as good and it seemed as though he didn't care as much i mean he was a nice guy but he always seemed frantic, and I couldn't tell why. My feeling was that when he was in his frantic moments, he would make decisions that weren't right for the show. I mean, valid. I mean, and he was there. Mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy said about this episode, that one didn't work very well, as I recall. It was an interesting attempt that did not really come to like, like four score and seven years. <laughs> and Philip Pine, who played Colonel Green, ending ending our recollections on a, on a good note. He said, I was really fortunate that Paramount didn't know how Star Trek struck I was at the time, or they would have made me pay them to appear on the show. Uh-huh. I had always been a fan of Gene Roddenberry's work, and I jumped at the opportunity to appear in a series that I personally enjoyed watching every week. I was pleased to be a part of it, and I thought the character of Green was really well-written. I guess I'll give my final thoughts first. Here's what I think. This is one where I don't think 
the whole the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts you know like i think i love we've already talked about how much we all love lincoln and the portrayal of him and how moving it was to us and i feel all of that i love kirk's you know being with his hero and the effect it has there are so many very very star trek moments including the uhura one including talking about peace and sacrifice and all those things that all stuff all really works the thing that doesn't work to me is this is a movie that asks the question is good stronger than evil mm-hmm. and it completely fails to answer that question in fact all it does is kind of go yeah there we don't really show a lot of difference you know and and the only person who does a truly good action is not one of our main characters it's serac and it ends up being useless you know right. and so right. like the the structurally the the whole is it just fails for me while I enjoy watching the parts of it that I really like watching it. And I guess this kind of goes, you know, we're getting near very near the end of the series is something that I said way, way back at the beginning of my love for star Trek is unconditional love. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I love, I can love watching an episode like the Savage curtain for the things that are good in it and not, and just accept the things that I don't think quite work because of how much I love these characters. And I love this world. Mm. Excellent point. Johnny, what are, what are your final thoughts on Savage Curtain? My final thoughts are that I it's still a, a episode that holds a very spe- special place in my heart. I had, I absolutely agree that there are issues with the episode, that it doesn't 100% work in certain ways narratively, and the structure of it sometimes can be a bit weird, or as some people have called it, cheesy. But for me, emotionally, the power is still there. Emotionally, the journey is not Spock's journey. It's Kirk's journey. And if they nail that, then the other stuff that kind of doesn't quite come up to snuff is okay by me in an episode like this because I felt Kirk's love of Lincoln. I felt Kirk's honor and respect and awe of Lincoln. I felt his growing friendship with Lincoln. And then I felt him lose Lincoln. And so for that, it carries weight for me um, as a as a fan of Lincoln myself and a fan of James Tiberius Kirk. It carries weight with me, and uh, I will always love this episode for that reason, even though I recognize its faults. Um, You know, it's like loving a family member. You know they got some things you don't agree with, but overall, they're still your family. This episode's still my family, and I will always defend it um, for what it does accomplish, which is giving you a good emotional arc for these two characters that were the central characters of this episode. Well, I'm grateful, John, that you joined us for this one because by defending the Savage Curtain and just the the, the conversation that we had, uh, this is another episode, the Savage Curtain, that went up in my estimation after our deep dive. There have been quite a few episodes that have gone way up after and after our deep dive conversation, Steve, and and the fact that that happened on even just one episode, let alone quite a few, like. Obviously, Miri is definitely, I think that was the first one that I really went, holy moly, this episode is actually really good. But also, The Deadly Gears was one that went up in my estimation. I already liked that one. I already liked Return of the Archons. That conversation was amazing. And this one, John, you definitely helped me appreciate this episode a whole lot more. Like I said, not an episode that I watched a whole lot, but when I watched it, I like it. I think I liked it a whole lot more because it has some really great moments. You know, the the performance of uh, the actor who plays Lincoln is just he really sells it. He really sells it. And Kirk, uh, uh, his admiration of Lincoln Shatner also really, really sells it. Their yeah. chemistry is terrific. I thought the the alien, the Excalbian was was really cool. You know, uh, like, you know, the costume design. 
And Steve, I agree with you that compared to an episode like Arena, this definitely falls short of having that impact. But still, it's an episode that I enjoy. I think I enjoy it a whole lot more. I have a much deeper appreciation for it. I got to say to to John Roca that uh, you know having you on for this uh, not only sticks the landing of Enterprise Incidents, but uh, if I haven't said this before, doing Enterprise Incidents for everyone listening, for all the Enterprisers who have been listening all this time, we would not be doing Enterprise Incidents if it was not for John Stephen Roca, because. John brought me on to do an episode of The Cinephiles on the Wrath of Khan, which is where I met my great new friend, Steve Morris. And that was how Steve Morris, for a very long time, said, we got to do Star Trek. And I finally said, OK, let's do it. And here we are doing Enterprise Incidents. So it all started with John <laughs> Stephen Roca, the outlaw himself, and the, the, the joy, the enlightenment uh, you know, gaining a brand new friend in Steve Morris, I owe it all to you, John Roca. I am eternally grateful for for deepening a love I have for Star Trek and making me love something more that I just I just did not think it was possible. So thank you, my friend. That's very kind of you, Scott. Very kind. You all put it all together. You all did your thing. I just you know whatever part I played in it is my joy because it's been so much fun to have to come on and have these conversations with you guys. But and just as much fun as having you on the Cinephiles to break down all the movies that we do. Uh, No, honestly, you're one of our favorite guests. I know Steve and I always look forward to doing it and having fun conversations with you because your mind, your mind for film is incredible, Scott. It is incredible, and so getting a chance to share it uh, both on TV and film has been a blast. So you know, it's very kind words, but you guys put the show together and constructed it and deserve all the credit so thank you but thank, thank you for having me on thank you yes great. sir i approve everything that was just said <laughs> <laughs> thank you john and scott for for having all of this happen and that is what we think of the savage curtain of course we'd love to hear your thoughts on facebook if you're a facebook person you could search for enterprise incidents if you're a twitter person and at the moment of this recording i don't know there's gonna be twitter but if there is, it's Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on uh, Instagram, which will probably stay around a little bit longer. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or YouTube or Spotify or Overcast or Stitcher or all those other places, wherever you want to subscribe, please do. And if there's an opportunity to leave a review, which there certainly is on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review of Enterprise Incidents. And if you want to support the show, all the hard work we've done, it would really be appreciated if you just look at the show notes. There is a link to Anchor where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month or as much as 9.99 a month and you could just think of it as like hey i enjoyed that i'm gonna just throw these guys a tip we definitely appreciate it um and if you want to find me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and you know i always try to mention an episode of the cinephiles which i do with my partner john steven roca uh, every week and of course there's no episodes i already mentioned what they were John and I both agree these might be two of our finest episodes ever, and that is our two episodes on Ken Burns' Civil War. Yeah. Scott, how do people find you? Uh, well, before you can, I can tell you where you can find me, I want to know where we can find John Stephen Rocket because he is quite literally the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> he is everywhere. He is – He's and, and all the work he is doing on all the various shows and podcasts – uh, everything he is doing is absolutely stellar. If you are not following him, if you are not subscribing to his YouTube channel, you are seriously missing out on some of the finest commentary on film and TV you will find anywhere 
all over the web. So Johnny, where can people find you? Thank you again, Scott. Uh, yeah, you can find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, the outlaw nation on Twitch. Definitely follow me on Twitch. The world cups about, well, I guess, will this be out by the time of the world cup or when is this one coming out? It's going to be uh, this coming out tonight. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> and yeah, the world cup is coming up and I'm going to be doing some live watch alongs on my new sports channel. That's called game time and also on Twitch. So I'll be doing those back and forth. So definitely follow me there and follow that channel and my other podcasts, the cinephiles that I do with Steve Morris, uh, the top 10, uh, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mike, which I do with uh, Jeff Snyder, who's also a friend of uh, Scott Mance's. Jeff Snyder, what a guy. Yes, I love it. We are, we're all like brothers. We're all family. <laughs> so, so okay, so sure. Uh, for, for the time being, you can follow me on Twitter at Movie Mance. You can still find me on Instagram at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, please be sure to support us through Anchor. I mean, this has been the ultimate labor of love, but we would appreciate any any donations, any support you can provide. So, so much appreciated. And this is really important. Make sure you follow us on our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, because to all the enterprises who are already listening, if you are not following us on our Facebook page, you're going to want to do so because in just a few days or so, we are going to be making a very big announcement about our very special guest that we are having on our very next episode of Enterprise Incidents, our deep dive on all our yesterdays. When that deep dive is finished, we are going to have an interview exclusive to Enterprise Incidents, and we are going out on the biggest possible note. Who could this special guest possibly be? We are not going to say right here on this episode of Enterprise Incidents because we want to make the announcement on our Facebook page. But believe me, everyone listening to Enterprise Incidents is going to want to listen to our very next episode of Enterprise Incidents when we are covering an episode that I am very excited to do. I didn't want to rush to get to this point, but now that we are finally here, All Our Yesterdays is one of my very favorite episodes of Star Trek, and not just because it is photo novel number six, but all our yesterdays is next on Enterprise Incidents. So as we are closing down our voyage through the original series with only two episodes to go, I cannot believe I am saying that, only two episodes to go, join us next time, and until then, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.